Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. How many iOS devices do you have, Jeff? I have... Um... Yes, not the ones in the Apple drawer. <laughs> uh, I have two. I have an iPad Pro and my iPhone XS. That's not much. It's not. I, I feel perhaps I shouldn't mention how many I have. I have a 10-inch iPad Pro. Was it 9.7-inch? I have an iPhone 8 Plus. I have an iPhone SE. I have an iPad Mini 4. I even have an iPod Touch, which I originally bought to test iOS operating system betas. And now I use the iPhone SE for that. I really only have two. It's really the iPhone 8 Plus and, and the iPad Pro. Do you ever use these for your photography to edit photos? I seem to remember you wrote something about using the iPad for photography, didn't you, at some point? I did. I wrote an entire book, uh, three editions of a book called The iPad for Photographers. Yes, surprisingly, I use my iPad and my iPhone quite a bit for editing. I say that surprisingly because it's not like it's my main place where I do all my editing, but I end up doing it more often than I think I do, if that makes sense. Hmm. I think you need to check your screen time settings on your iOS devices for that. <laughs> That's a good idea. So today we wanted to talk about editing photos on iOS devices because, you know, think back a few years to the early iPhones, you know, the iPhone 3G or 4 or whatever. These things had little tiny cameras and what could you do? Apply a couple filters to them. But now, particularly with the iPad Pro, you can use these powerful tools to edit photos. While it is still limited compared to working with a real computer, and we'll discuss that in a few minutes, it is pretty amazing what you can do these days. Which apps do you use to edit photos on your iOS devices? Primarily, I use Lightroom because I'm I'm in the Lightroom ecosystem. Right, you're the Lightroom guy. Yeah, and Lightroom CC on the iPad and the iPhone has caught up so that most of the features that you'll find in Lightroom CC on the desktop are there. And so it allows me to very quickly do easy edits, not necessarily like, like my final edits, but it can do quite a bit. We, we talked about like uh, performing uh, selective edits in an earlier episode, and that's something that ma made a big difference for me, especially if I'm working on like a landscape uh, photo. So I will do that to, to do editing. I'll also use it to rate and cull and just go, go through my library and find things that are worth uh, working on later. And all those edits sync to your real computers then? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's actually very slick because the, the edits are just like basically tiny text instructions. And so those get synced through Creative Cloud and then um, get picked up. And so the, the exact edits apply and it doesn't matter, you know, which which device I'm on. Right. And it's the same with Apple Photos where you have far fewer editing options. You can edit things like brightness and contrast. You can apply a couple of filters. You can do some nice black and white adjustments, but you are limited. And when you do those, they bounce through the cloud if you use iCloud Photo Library over to your Macs, and you can then access them on your other iOS devices. So you can import photos into your iPad, do some edits, do them on the Macs, have them on your iPhone. It is quite a flexible ecosystem. So in order to do this, there is this one key gizmo that Apple makes, which is called the Lightning SD card thingamajig, right? <laughs> Something like the Lightning to SD card adapter. 
It's had a few names. It, it's basically a dongle that lets you pop your memory card in, connect it to your iPad or iPhone, and import your photos just as you would on your computer. But can you import them into Lightroom? Um, yes, sort of. Ah, um, I was waiting for that because the, the, the usual Apple's walled garden and sandboxing and all that. Yeah, yeah. So so what happens is you import things into the camera roll, your, your photo library, and then Lightroom has a feature where you can either import it from the camera roll or it'll automatically add any new photos to your Lightroom library. So I have that turned on. So you import it and then give it a few minutes, and then everything shows up in your Lightroom library and then starts to sync through Creative Cloud. So be before we started the show, we were talking about this, and, and I said that we were going to start by talking about the ethics of editing on an iOS device. And ethics isn't the right word, but in a way it is, because it's not a real computer. You don't have the same options. You have limits. You can't select things as well. If you use the Apple Pencil, you might be able to select things. I don't have one of those. You don't get the same type of detailed editing options that you do with a real computer. On the other hand, do you necessarily always need those editing options? When you edit on an iPad or an iPhone, are your edits mostly, let's just say, crops and brightness and contrast and shadows and highlights and, and the broader adjustments? Yeah, I think so. And before we go too far, I want to want to point out a little, little bit of a fork in the road here in that sometimes the edits that I'll do on an iOS device are really just for things that I want to share to Instagram or on Facebook. I'm not really expecting this to be like a grand final edit of a piece that might be later framed or what have you. And so for that, it's especially good. All of the different utilities, we'll get into some of those, are great for, for that sort of sharing. But that said, sometimes I'll do more advanced edits with the Apple Pencil on the iPad Pro because I don't have a digitizer on my Mac. What's a digitizer? I'm sorry, a stylus, like a like a Wacom tablet or right. you know, okay. something like that. I didn't know that was called a digitizer. That's what I've always known it as. That might be like a really old term and people will be like, okay, grandpa. <laughs> when I want to use that is usually if I'm working on a photo that, that needs some, some spot adjustments or maybe some healing, little repairs here and there. It's a lot easier to do with the pencil on the iPad Pro than clicking around uh, with the mouse sometimes. So essentially what you're saying is that you don't really do serious editing on your iOS device. But can one do serious editing on these devices now? I mean, if you look at some of the apps that are available, Affinity Photo has an iOS version Photoshop is apparently coming to the iPad very soon. Real Photoshop. The real Photoshop, not Photoshop mini light free version just to try out a couple of photos. Adobe has, has been very, uh, very obvious and deliberate about saying real Photoshop, which I think is kind of hilarious. Well, particularly because, uh, you know, I do use the term real camera when I'm talking about a camera versus an iPhone, or as I was just saying, real computer earlier, they are trying to make it seem like you, you can do everything. As a brief aside, one of the issues I mentioned to you before the show, and the first thing I thought of when they announced this was, well, if you can't calibrate your iOS device, the limitations here are quite serious because anyone who's doing any serious work, particularly involving printing, needs to be working on a calibrated display. Yes, yes. Although I, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit because I think 
in most of these cases, like you know the the use cases that we're talking about, working on the iPad is the sort of intermediate step. Like you can probably get ninety percent of the way there working in Photoshop for iPad or Affinity for iPad, Lightroom for iPad. You can do most of what you're doing because you know the the screen it it may not be color calibrated with all of your other devices, but it's still a very good screen. It's got wide color gamut. It's a really good representation compared to a lot of other devices that are on the market. But my my whole point is that what you're saying is basically it's just to do a little bit of stuff, but it's not serious yet. They're trying to sell it as real Photoshop, suggesting that you can do everything you need. Well, I guess it depends on on what that next step is. Are you going to go from Photoshop on the iPad and then directly like send that to a printing service? That might make me a little bit wary because, like you said, it's not color managed. Depending on on what you're doing, it might be perfectly fine, but people who are are you know really serious about this professionals if you're printing something large you definitely want to put it onto something that's that's color managed your computer and you have all of those extra options but i don't think that people who are who are going to be using photoshop i don't think they are also the ones who uh, who use an iPad as their only device. It does make sense. And I think that's a bit of the disconnect that they want to put Photoshop on the iPad more to say that they've done it rather than to actually meet the needs of users. Well, yeah, that's a really good good point. I mean, I wonder how many people really want this and how many people say they want this but won't actually end up using it. That's the big question. And we can talk about that a little bit more when we talk about Affinity Photo, too. Okay, well, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some specific apps that we use on iOS and where they can be really useful and where they have limitations. Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the Masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Myrowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still life photography. I strongly recommend this course with Joe Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for PhotoActive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. Okay, so we wanted to talk about a few specific apps that we've used. There are so many photo editing apps available for iOS now. It's really astounding. A lot of this has to do with the quality of the CPU and the graphics card, particularly in the iPad, that gives these apps the possibility to do really wonderful things. And, and very quickly, when you do apply an edit to a photo, it is extremely fast. Particularly in the, the modern editions of the iPad, say the, the iPad Pro really and the 11-inch iPad Pro, there's a lot more RAM in there, a lot more like active memory, which makes a huge difference. People don't really think about that. But in the early days, back when I was writing my iPad for Photographers book, RAM was always a limitation. And so developers would have to come up with ways to work on part of an image and not an entire image or 
resize the image. And so now they've got some breathing room to actually do a lot of these sorts of complex calculations that's that's required in image editing. I've got my iPad Pro right in front of me with a wonderful picture of Titus the cat, which I'll put in the show notes. And I'm zooming in and zooming out, and it's perfectly smooth. There's no stuttering or anything like that. And yet, I remember with the very earliest iPads, even on lower resolution photos, um, this is a 24 megapixel photo. On early iPads, it was it got painful after a while. It really did. So the, the improvements are huge. And it means that you can apply edits relatively quickly without feeling like it's a big job for the device. And that that makes all the difference because when you're applying edits, you know, you're not thinking about computationally and, and refresh rates and all that. You're thinking, how is this thing that I've done, this edit that I've applied, like like what does that make it look like? And so, you know, that that responsiveness is is everything because this is visual. You want to see what's going to happen. Okay, so I want to start by talking about an app that is extraordinarily powerful and entirely free. It's Google Snapseed. Have you used this much? I have. I have. I really like it. I actually tend to use it more on my iPhone than the iPad for some reason. The way Snapseed presents its options, these little icons with words under them like tune image, details, curves, white balance, etc., makes it easy to use on a small device. You don't have to hunt for, you know, the way you have sliders in Lightroom and, and other apps like that. You don't have to hunt for anything. It's relatively simple. You tap one of them. I'm going to tap, let's see, I'm going to tap Glamour Glow. And it automatically applies a filter to it. We'll talk about filters in a minute. And there are a few different options. And Glamour Glow is a sort of it's kind of an Orton effect, if you know what that is. It's a way of like adding blur around things and it glows. And and so you look at your photo and you see it quite quickly. And what's interesting is if you look at the very top of the screen, there's a tiny line, half of which is blue and half of which is white. If you slide a finger back and forth across the image, you raise and lower the amount of effect of the filter. So when you apply the filter, it's glow plus 50. And if you slide to the left, it goes down to five or 10 or whatever. There are many more options if you tap the adjust button. Here you can adjust glow, saturation, and warmth. And the, the interface is brilliant. The way you just tap and slide to change anything. The only buttons you have really are the check button to approve an edit or the X button to cancel your edit. I have to say the interface is what drew me to Snapseed in the first place. Like, for example, I really love how when you're editing some, some of the basics, you slide up and down anywhere to switch between, say, brightness and contrast and, and other options, and then right to left to do the the plus and minus, the amount of the effect. It was just genius, especially on a phone, because you also have to realize that I think most of the photo editing that we're used to on a computer, we're relying on a big screen. We're relying on, you know, lots of real estate to have menus and palettes and, and bars. Like, we just don't have that and, and don't need it on a smaller device. Yeah. Snapseed is full of interesting effects. Now, one of the problems with apps like this, and we'll talk about a couple other later, is that you can go overboard quite easily. And some of the options it gives, like retro looks or grunge, grunge is the kind of thing where you get like this really weird texture with strange lighting. And sometimes it looks interesting. If, if you go on Instagram, you see a lot of people using that sort of filter with the texture that makes something look like an old photo that's been stepped on a number of times. But some of the basic settings, you know, you can crop and rotate and you can adjust brightness and, and contrast. There's portrait stuff. You can put frames around pictures. One of my favorite is lens blur. And the screenshot I'll put in the show notes shows lens blur applied to a photo of Titus the cat. 
Wensboro is the kind of thing where you position a circle at the the focal point of your photo, and everything else sort of blurs progressively as it goes out from the circle. And the circle doesn't have to be in the exact center of the photo. In last week's episode, we talked about background blur, and lens blur is another way of blurring things around your subject that can be attractive in certain photos. But like all of these things, if you use them too much, they end up being a bit gimmicky. One of my favorite tools in uh, Snapseed, surprisingly, is called HDRscape. Um, and, you know, we talked about HDR recently. And what I like about it is that it will just apply an HDR effect to a single image. And if you listen to our previous episode, you're like, but Jeff, HDR is when you're merging different exposures. What are you talking about? And that's exactly how I came to it. I was like, okay, this will be a funny trick. Um, surprisingly, their algorithms do a really good job of giving you know an HDR effect, pulling out shadow detail um, just on single images. Um, however, I give it the caveat in that when you first apply it, it's probably way overboard. And you can make a super terrible, chunky HDR image really easily. So I you know, typically apply it and then dial it way back down. And it does a great job. I mean, I've made some really nice pictures from it. And, and that's one of the things about Snapseed's filters. As we mentioned before, you can just slide to adjust the effect of the filter. And you may want to apply some of these filters or tools, whatever you want to call them, just for a tiny percentage of its capabilities. You don't necessarily need to use the way it, it sets it at the middle of the range immediately. It's just like, it's just strange. Um, but you have these options. And, and what you need to do is you need to spend some time with a bunch of different photos and play around with them and see what happens and apply edits and cancel. And you'll learn that you can, just a very slight effect on a photo, um, as you say, the, the HDR effect can make a big difference on, on, on your can make a big difference on your pictures. Another thing I want to point out is, as you're making all these these edits, Snapseed does a really good job of basically like layering those. So you can, you can go back and change uh, HDR scape after you've done something else before. You're not burning everything in. Snapseed was also one of the first to take advantage of a feature Apple implemented, where when you save your image, you actually are saving the edit to the camera roll. So that edit becomes that photo in your photos library. However, it's not permanently burned in. You can revert to the original at any time, which is a smart way to do it because also it, it means that you aren't just making an extra copy, although that that's an option. But That's another way to do it yeah. if you want to really be safe is make an extra copy, maybe make several copies and, and on each one apply a number of edits and look at them all afterwards and see which ones you like best. Exactly. I have to say that Snapseed fails on one thing. They have a portrait tool which works similar to Apple's portrait mode, but what it's trying to do is detect faces. And with the photo of Titus the cat, it says no faces could be found in this photo. <laughs> no human faces. Well, didn't someone just come out and say that they were going to support cat faces? What did I see? Actually, well, Google Photos has supported pets, um, I'm going to say, for most of the past year. Or maybe it was earlier in the year they announced support for that. It could just be even though Google owns Snapseed, I'm sure they're, they yes. have different development teams, et cetera. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's a popular request by people. Let's look at another app. You know more about it than I do. It's Affinity Photo. I just have to say, I have Affinity Photo on my 
iPad, and I'm just loading the same photo of Titus the cat. And I'm stymied by the simplest things in this app. Like, how do you even crop a photo? I find it impenetrable. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and I should also point out, I wrote a review of Affinity Photo for iPad for DP Review. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. One of the things that I pointed out in my review is the interface actually is very smart in terms of making it work on a mobile device. So it's not taking up a lot of screen real estate. However, Affinity, like they really want you to get into their headspace. So for example, something like, like Photoshop or Lightroom. Lightroom has different modules. You have like the develop module and that's where you do your editing and your libraries where you do your organizing. This has no organizer, but I guess module is too, too pedestrian. So in Affinity Photo, they're called personas and you have different personas and i say that sort of dripping with a little bit of irony uh because i mean it, it it just sounds like a marketing thing you know which is annoying but you have different personas for like making sort of basic edits and then you have like a completely different uh, persona for making selections so rather than you know having a whole bunch of extra selection tools on the screen, you have to switch to a different mode. And then you have like another one for doing HDR type stuff. It really takes a bit of brain bending to get into how it's going to do it. I was messing around with it earlier because I will admit I reviewed it, but I haven't used it a whole lot since then because Affinity Photo really is sort of like like right now, if you want Photoshop on the iPad, you get Affinity Photo. It's very powerful. It will do a lot of stuff. It has really great layer support. It's a very, very good tool. And most of the edits that I do on my photography is not geared toward that level of editing. Like I don't need to isolate a subject and copy them and put them on a completely different background or bring in a whole collage of different elements into one image. That is the strength of this, is, is being able to you know really push pixels in all sorts of different directions. I mostly want to make adjustments to photos that I've already taken. So it's a very powerful tool, but boy, you got to work at it. I have the same feeling about Affinity Photo on the desktop. This whole Personas thing is a bit too confusing. They tried to create their own vocabulary and it makes it impenetrable. But even now I'm on the iPad, the same picture of Titus the cat, and I want to crop it. So I go to the crop tool and well, I want to choose custom ratio because it doesn't have any presets. And I hate the fact that Affinity Photo on the Mac doesn't have many presets. It only has a few. And for example, it has eight inches by 10 inches. They don't remember that they're a British company and people use A4 here for page size, for example. But I have figured out to set the custom ratio at two by two, so it's square, but I'm trying to find the return key to press to apply the crop and I can't do it. It's one of those things where you figure out what you need. If you really need a lot of these powerful tools and you just don't want to you know, have to lug around a laptop, this will get you partially there. But just, just understand that that you need to get into its headspace. You need to tie into it. Once you do, it'll unlock a lot. Well, I can crop more easily with Snapseed or Apple Photos or anything like that. I find this actually quite stunning that it's impossible to figure out how to crop. But anyway, let's move on. <laughs> you wanted to talk about Lightroom a little bit. Give us a quick overview of what you can do with Lightroom. What are the limitations? 
And as you said earlier, you don't necessarily do all your edits. So do we care that much about the limitations? Do we really need the power of Affinity Photo or Lightroom on an iOS device? Ooh, that that's a big question. So the reason I mostly use Lightroom on the iPad is because it does all the stuff that I want it to do for photos. You know, it does cropping, it does, it has really good tools for adjusting tone and color, and you can apply color profiles that then sync over to uh, Lightroom CC. And I, and I should also point out that I mostly use Lightroom CC on my Mac, not Lightroom Classic. There are some issues there. And so those sorts of, of edits are are perfectly fine. Another reason that I do that is because I'm already in the Lightroom ecosystem. And so my library is is right there and I can, you know, like the convenience of it is a big deal. The Adobe Industrial Complex. Yes, exactly. You've been suckered into it. You can never get out. It's like that hotel in California where you can check out, but you can never leave. Yeah, I'm invested. I still use other tools that, you know, don't get me wrong there. But, you know, having my library convenient in that way makes a huge difference. And the tools are very, very good. So to your other question, why even do this on the iPad in the first place? Again, it's that convenience. I would much rather do a lot of editing sitting on the couch in the evening rather than, you know, having to come up to my office and, and use my computer. Even though, you know, I use a laptop, I could bring a laptop down. But with the Apple Pencil, it just makes it a lot easier. And like I said, I can do 90, 95% of what I want on the iPad and then go do final touch-ups, final cleanup on the computer. Okay, fair enough. There's a whole category of photo apps that you can get for iOS and for Android and other things like that. They're apps that apply filters. Instagram already, if you take photos or if you upload photos, you can apply filters. Snapseed has a bunch of filters in some of the settings. But there are apps that are filters only. And one of the best known is Visco. Visco is an interesting app, but unfortunately, I, I don't particularly like the business model. It's essentially, well, you get some basic stuff for free and then all the rest is extremely expensive. Now, there is a subscription that you can get on iOS. It's 20 or $30 a year where you get access to all the filters. But the problem with this sort of approach to me is that these filters are quite limited. You don't get a lot of editing options. Of course, they all have tools like cropping and straightening and, and brightness and, and adjustments like that. But then you get this like scrolling list of dozens or hundreds of filters. And you're trying to figure out, Jeff just stuck out his tongue. That's how I feel. You're trying to figure out which one looks good. You tap one, you look at it. Well, I don't like that. The next one, uh, maybe. And you see the little thumbnails at the bottom of the of the window. And it just seems to me that unless your type of photography is based on taking pictures and applying a specific filter to them, and this may be the case for some people, I don't really find this particularly interesting. I think that's exactly the point. I think it's, you know, someone finds a look that they like that they want to apply to all their photos. I've tried Visco. I've, I've really tried to get into it. The interface I find sort of inscrutable. When I'm editing photos, I'm trying to make it either exactly like I saw it at the time when I took the photo, or I want to enhance something about it. I don't necessarily just want to put a brown grungy filter on all of my photos because that's my look, man, you know? And and for a lot of people, that works great. And I know people who use Visco and their shots are wonderful. It's just not for me. A lot of the Visco filters try to emulate old film stocks. And it's true that there is a fad of making photos look like Kodachrome or Velvia or whatever, you know, the different films. The problem is that 
the, the, the number of options in Visco is just overwhelming. I'll put a screenshot in the show notes of the same picture of Titus the cat. He's going to ask me for some residuals for his presence on this show, showing the basic Visco interface. And at the bottom, you see a number of filters and there's little colors under them. That there's A456 and there's B123, et cetera, et cetera. But I can scroll here for about a minute and a half to get to the end of the list. There's so many. Again, you do have to pay for certain ones. You either buy a filter pack or you pay for the annual subscription. And and I did take the subscription out last year for a year and I didn't renew it because as you say, it's not it's not the kind of photos that I like to do. And and some of them look good if you're looking for that kind of image and I don't know, say you're doing a wedding and the people want something that is like 1950s look. So you get that sort of muted color, high contrast, you know, Kodachromey type thing. But it's not really an editing tool. It's more a tool for applying a look to a photo. One last thing I want to toss in for our listeners. Um, we've hit a few apps here. If there are some apps that you particularly like or that you want us to comment on, go to our Facebook group and let us know because there are so many apps out there. We can't be expected to know every single one of them. So we want to hear from you. What do you, what do you like and what should we look at? Yeah, we'd love to discover some apps that we don't know because, uh, as we said earlier, the power of editing on iOS is really quite impressive. Okay, so it's time to talk about our snapshots. Jeff, what's on your radar this week? It's a battery charger that plugs in via USB. Now, a lot of the manufacturers are now shipping battery chargers with new, newer cameras that have a USB plug. And the idea behind this is you don't need to find a wall outlet to charge your batteries. I'm still using my Fuji X-T1, so I have a few little battery chargers, but they all plug into the walls. And sometimes, you know, when you're out and about, of course, there's no wall. You can't just plug it into a tree. So if you have a little battery backup bank, which I think a lot of us now do to charge phones and whatever, this is an excellent way to charge a battery when you need it and you're, you're not near any sort of electrical source. Kirk, do you have one for this week? I do. And this week I want to talk about a film. And this sort of came across my radar again recently. It's, it's a film by Andrei Tarkovsky called Stalker. It was made in 1979. It's based on a short novel by Arkady and Boris Strugatsky called Roadside Picnic. It's the story of some people who live in an area that's called the Zone, where something happened. There might have been a meteorite. There might have been a, an alien visitation or something like that. And it's a dangerous area, and few people were allowed to go there. But there were these rumors that when you went there, you got some sort of enlightenment or spiritual thing or your life changed. And so... The stalker is the guide who would take people to this room. This is a brilliant film. It's kind of like a science fiction movie written by Samuel Beckett. It's very slow. Very little happens. The reason I picked this is because in this film, like in all of Tarkovsky's films, the composition of each shot is extraordinary. And looking at films like this can help understand the composition of photos. It's almost as if he makes his composition as still photos. There's not always a lot of movement going on. In fact, in this film, most of the shots are quite still. I'll link to an article I wrote about this on my website. There's a book by Jeff Dyer called Zona, which is a shot-by-shot -shot analysis of the film. And Jeff Dyer's written a lot about photography as well. So if you do check out the movie, you might be interested in checking out the book. It's called Stalker by Andrei Tarkovsky. 
Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Until next week, thanks again for listening.